Hello, I'm Katie, and this is The Bittersweet Life. A quick word. You rely on us to show up every week, and we depend on you to keep this show going. In a few weeks, a huge bill is coming due for us, over $400 in hosting fees, and at a time when both Tiffany and I are underemployed. I know many of you are too, so for those of you who can, please support the show. You can make a donation at our website, thebittersweetlife.net, or check out all the thank you gifts and pledge to become a monthly supporter at patreon.com slash thebittersweetlifepodcast. You can find all those links in the show notes. And a big thank you to our three newest Patreon supporters, Jill, Donna, and Neil. Watch your mailboxes and inboxes for thank you cards and gifts, including our exclusive Super Secret Truth or Dare episode, one of my absolute favorite episodes of the show. And thank you to those of you who recently pledged at our website, thebittersweetlife.net. You'll be getting special gifts and a handwritten thank you note in your mailbox soon as well. Thank you, Lori, Teresa, Valerie, and Jill. And for all of you who have contributed to the show monthly for years, we are extremely grateful to you, as always. So if you love the show and you want to help, find those donate links in the show notes. A little goes a long way. Now, on to the show. Welcome to Rome. This is The Bittersweet Life with Katie Sewell and Tiffany Parks. Hello, this is The Bittersweet Life. I'm Katie Sewell. Tiffany is away today, but I am joined by Stephanie Dandler, a novelist, memoirist, and screenwriter. She wrote the international bestseller Sweet Bitter, and she is the creator and executive producer of the Sweet Bitter series on the Stars Network. Her latest book is a memoir called Stray, and that's what we're here to talk about today. Thanks for being here. Oh, thank you so much for having me and for putting this together at home. (laughs) Absolutely. Well, we often operate from home, but yes, it's so much better if you had been in Seattle and we could have actually sat down together. Yes, of course. Where are you right now? I'm in Los Angeles, which is where I live, more or less more these days. Curious, since we're all quarantined and you were supposed to be on book tour right now, or just about to be, your book comes out on the 5th of May. What is it like to have that canceled after all this hard work? I think I'm going through the same thing that a lot of authors with spring releases are going through, which is on the one hand, people are reading and there's this large and engaged sense of community. On the other hand, nobody knows the rules for how to promote books and how to sell books. And the loss of the indies is really devastating. I think a lot about the debut authors and there's just no space to really celebrate in the way that you used to be able to. And so for me personally, Connecting with readers, I toured with Sweet Bitter for a year pretty consistently. Connecting with readers is the whole point of writing something, especially something like a memoir. And so hopefully I'm able to do that. But yeah, I'm sad. I'm also very pregnant. So I'm not like devastated that I'm not going to be on a plane every day for a (laughs) month. I was going to be like 30 weeks. (laughs) Wow. Yeah. Yeah. So... 
that is the upside, the silver lining. Since this is a memoir and a memoir that takes place a number of years ago, what is it like to be talking about the past during this period of time? I think anytime you're talking about a set period of time, in the case of my first book, Sweet Bitter, it was 2006. And in the case of Stray, the present tense is in 2015. There's a quality of nostalgia already. Things change so quickly. And so in the case of Stray, let's not even talk about quarantining COVID, but it was before the election. And to me, that puts it inside of a bubble. There was some optimism left. That's all. There was some optimism um, left in the world. And I can't imagine writing anything post-2016 or that wasn't in some way addressing the way the world has changed since the election. I mean, I thought things were really bad back then, but... <laughs> it can <know>. get worse. <laughs> it keeps going. Um, and then I was working on a new book right before we went into quarantine and before the reality of the pandemic set in in the United States. And I haven't been able to touch it since. It seems like something from a different mind, a mind that's able to focus for longer periods of time or invent things or make decisions. And I, in a way, I'm grateful to have the book promotion because that's like busy work. That is something I can accomplish. Right. I don't know how to write right now. Yeah. What I've heard from a number of my author friends is that it's hard to know what kind of a book would be okay on the other side of this, what people will actually want to read because we might be so different. And that's part of the problem that they're having in the writing. As I'm writing pieces that will be adjacent to publication, some magazines are asking to not talk about it. And I just can't imagine publishing anything right now, any article, any essay that wasn't somehow dealing with the reality that we're all in. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Interesting. Well, let's talk about the book. This book, the way that you structured it was based around places, places you've lived in places you visited. Why was place so important? I think that place is sort of inextricable from story. I was thinking a lot about um, Henry David Thoreau's Walden, the first chapter, uh, where I lived and what I lived for. And I believe that those two always go hand in hand. Where you are determines your ethics in some ways, but also what you want out of the world. Place was really important in my first book as well. I really believe that an emotional landscape colors the physical landscape. And so... For me to come back to California and see it as both beautiful, unbelievably beautiful, but also volatile and violent and scary in a lot of ways, I wanted to be able to talk about the emotional states that those were bringing up in me as well. So it is very, the book's very anchored to different places. It's also a good device for grounding the reader in a memoir that's not linear. Yeah. I ask because uh, our listeners are very international. A lot of them are expats. A lot of them are constantly moving around and sort of adjusting where they live to try to find the place that feels right. So place is something we talk a lot about on this show. 
So since the book is now out, I've gotten to read the whole thing, but nobody else has gotten to. Can you tell us kind of what your launching point is to visiting all these places that you visit in the book? What were you trying to get away from when it comes to your childhood? So the book is set in 2015. When I moved back to California, I had been living in New York for 12 years and I had been away from California for even longer. I came here, I told myself I came here to write. Sweet Bitter was about to be published. I was working on a new book and, or I wasn't working on it actually is the secret, (laughs) (laughs) Um, but I was pretending to work on it. But I think subconsciously I came home because I wanted to start over here or maybe heal something, or I felt ready to look at this place and the people that shaped me, namely my parents. And I found when I got back here, I was haunted by them. They are living, but they are addicts. The short story is that my mom has been a lifelong alcoholic and is disabled now from a brain aneurysm that happened in 2005. And my father is also a lifelong addict, but his life imploded due to crystal meth also in 2005, which is a year that I feel I lost both my parents. And so once I got back to California, I found I couldn't stop writing about them. And that is really the general arc of what the book is about. And it's not just look at all these terrible things that these very damaged people did to me. It's very much about how I have inherited that damage. And in some ways, I have transcended it because I'm not currently a crystal meth addict. I haven't been in the past. I think I'm going to escape that one. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> Hopefully. I'm not an alcoholic, but I am still their child. And I feel their sadness and their darkness and their depression and their self-destruction very acutely. You also trace it through the generation's before, at least one generation above them, Mm -hmm. that same sort of sadness. Well, you called it stray. Why? Stray. There's a stray cat that I fed when I lived in Laurel Canyon and I came back, but I've always been drawn to stray animals, that sort of feeling of exile and surviving on the kindness of strangers kind of being at home in the world. There's also stray as a verb, which is to stray off of a path, which is what I felt like I had done by the time I was in my early 30s and moved back to California and found myself in a really hurtful relationship with a married man that was impossible for me to get out of for a long time. I felt like I had strayed from the life that I hoped I could achieve some structure and and having healthy relationships. I feel like the book is about me turning a corner with that, but I don't I also don't really believe in the completeness of turning a corner. It's very ongoing. It's interesting. One of the things that you write in the book, very early on you leave the marriage that you're in, and it's not a huge thrust of of the book, but you do have a friend that asks you at one point, what do you want your life to look like in five years? And your answer is, I have no idea. I just want more. That's something that I've heard from so many of our listeners that are on this journey of 
trying to figure out what it is that they want next. Do you have any idea what that wanting, what that longing was at that point in your life? When I left my first husband, I, I had been feeling trapped and lonely for a while, but not desperately unhappy. There was no catalyst that made it clear that this was a terrible relationship. In fact, my ex-husband is a wonderful man and probably the most honest person I've ever met in my life. And so I really didn't know why I was doing it and really tortured myself and just kind of stumbled ahead blindly and started having an affair. And I was in love with the person I was having an affair with. And I wanted to be a writer. I didn't want to work in restaurants anymore. But what I was aching for really was time and space to write. I think I don't think that it's a coincidence that I left him and wrote Sweet Bitter immediately after now, part of that is because I was had nothing all of a sudden, and I was so depressed. I was like, I better write this book now because I've <laughs> given up everything. But I really struggled with how I could do both, how I could be a wife, how I could be a business owner, and how he very much wanted to have children at that point, how I could be a mother and also write the way that I wanted to. And so the more in that instance was sweet bitter, even though I didn't, I couldn't articulate it at the time. And I was just walking around with crying in public being like, what am I doing? This feels awful. I think the more, the wanting more is a really dangerous way to live. And it's hard because that instinct is sometimes survival based. You are trying to save your own life. And it appears just as I want something else. I've, I can't take another minute in this life. As I get older, I try to give that feeling space because what happens is that drive for more has you ejecting yourself from your life constantly and not giving things time to evolve or grow or change it can be a little escapist. It can be a little defensive, meaning I'm going to leave you before anything has a chance to go wrong. And so I still struggle with that. But in that instance, I am glad I listened to myself. I'm glad I went back to graduate school. I'm glad I started writing books. There was something wise in there, even though my behavior on the surface was very unwise. Yeah. A couple of weeks ago on the show, we were talking about how with us all being stuck in quarantine, especially in the United States, there's always this pressure even to keep building your life, get this much more successful, do this many more things. And that's just part of our culture. And we were saying that the interesting thing about this period of time is that we are now forced to live in the lives that we've already built, not in the ones that we're trying to build. Mm -hmm. Literally stuck in whatever life we currently have. And in thinking about that with your life now, because you are you are remarried, right? And you mm -hmm. have one kid and another one on the way. Yes. <laughs> Think about the two lives if you had stayed versus where you are now and you were stuck in one of those places. I can't imagine not writing, which is what 
that life would have meant. There wasn't space for my writing within that marriage. There wasn't space for me to be so focused on myself. And so I can't imagine it. I truly, I also, I got married. I didn't ever want to get married. And I got married fairly young. And I think those feelings of claustrophobia that I had within that marriage, like those are things that... I learned how to deal with when I was by myself, that sort of like, no matter where you go, there you are. I needed time alone in my late twenties and early thirties, because now in my marriage, I don't, I think about everything I put on my ex-husband. And I find that you can't give that all to someone else. That's your own journey you can't share every anxiety and you can't expect a partner to solve your problems for you. But I didn't know that because I was, I met him when I was 22, my ex-husband, and we were married when I was 26 and I was very young, I guess. I hate it when people give youth as an excuse, as if you're not (laughs) a fully cognizant autonomous person, but I just wasn't ready. Well, and you do change a lot. I mean, even in this book, you go through so much self-discovery. I mean, thinking about your parents again and the fact that they were both addicts, how would you say that their addictions have affected the way that you think about things as you move through the world? They, the sadness that they carry within them has told me from a very young age that I'm, I'm a sad person as well, or that I have a sort of darkness in me that given the right circumstances will consume my entire life, which is what happened with them. Alcoholism was kind of the de facto state of most of the adults who parented me, including my grandparents and people who were around. But the sort of like incremental destruction of a life to the point where my you know, my mom is physically and mentally incapacitated and needs a full-time caretaker. And my father was never able to get well. I mean, he, as far as I know, is sober now. But the way that they had lives and promise and hope and dreams and were funny and They've lost it all. I feel like I walk through life waiting for the other shoe to drop, no matter what happens, that there is something that I'm not fit for happiness, whatever happiness is, or that I'll destroy anything good that comes into my life. And what that does is that makes me my own enemy, which is a really hard, exhausting way to live. But I have gotten that from them. Hmm. Yeah, one of the stories that you tell as an illustration of your earlier mother is about you going to Disneyland. (laughs) What happens at Disneyland? Why is it so important? I think if you grow up in this pocket of Southern California, LA and Long Beach, where a lot of the book takes place, which is part of LA technically, but emotionally it's not, Disneyland is Mecca. It's like church. And we could not afford to go to Disneyland all the time. We went every once in a while. My mom was a single mother. Single mother. We spent a lot of time in daycare, a lot of time with our grandparents. But the story I tell in the book is one day she picked us up late from daycare 
and I must have been in first or second grade, and we thought we were driving home for dinner, and in fact, she was surprising us and taking us to Disneyland for dinner, and I never forgot, I did forget it, actually. The love interest in the book is asking me to remember good things about my mother, and this was what popped up, and I hadn't thought about it in decades, but it's so touching to think of her, how tired she was, how strapped we were in every, how stretched thin she was in every single respect, and to do something so extravagant for us and the sort of like sacrifice that she made on a daily basis is all seems epitomized by that choice to take us to Disneyland. We, my mother and I had a really turbulent relationship for all of my life, but I, I think I started to appreciate things like that anew. I think one of the things that haunts you in the book too, is how much you look like your mother. Mm. Why is that a haunting thing for you? I think when we talk about inheritance, we're often talking about money, real estate, talents, or physical attributes. You know, I've inherited my eye color through four generations of women. And then there's what inheritance has come to mean in my family, which is substance abuse, a, a quick switch to rage and a sort of victim mentality that is paralyzing. And so to look like my mother, who I once believed to be the most beautiful woman in the world, but has physically devolved quite a bit through her lifetime, I guess I'm constantly wondering which part I got from her the beauty or the sadness that she couldn't overcome. Hmm. And what if it's both? I guess if it's both that I'm very, very lucky. But again, that story changes constantly. Those meanings change constantly. Yeah. One of the things you write early on in the book also is you say, I'm only comfortable believing I don't live anywhere. What did you mean by that? So I, after my marriage ended, I got a storage unit in the Brooklyn Navy Yards and I started to live in a series of sublets, friends' couches and out of suitcases. And I was waiting tables, going to graduate school, trying to finish Sweet Bitter. And I came to really identify with this sense of not having any possessions and going from married life with all of its acquisition, you know, it's, oh, we're going to buy this mattress and we're going to buy fancy sheets because we're adults now. We're going to buy this all clad saute pan. And you know what? Let's pickle this weekend. (laughs) Like that life became so foreign to me overnight. All I had three jobs. I had school And I had my suitcase and a few books. Most of my books were in the storage unit. And I loved the freedom. And I think what I also really loved was not being accountable to anyone all of a sudden, that I could live like a feral animal for days on end while I had a deadline. And 
no one was watching me. Nobody cared where I was. Um, and then once I stopped waiting tables, once I sold Sweet Bitter, I had a series of residencies lined up for the year 2015. And I didn't have a lease anywhere. I didn't have a husband. I had the storage unit that I paid for. I thought, why don't I start traveling and see how long I can do this? And so that year, I mean, I could tell you the list of places and it's, it sounds extravagant, but I was like staying in hostels. I was trying, I had a very, very strict budget, but you know, I was in Greece. I was in France. I was in Italy and in Sicily and I was in Egypt and Spain and Ireland and Mexico. And I just kept anywhere someone was, if they said, Hey, I'm in Mexico city and I have a couch. I was like, great. Let me find the cheapest one way flight and I'll be there. And that all ended when I moved to California, but I, I had become really addicted to the anonymity right? This sort of like being able to disappear into the world at will. And I still long for it. When I was trying to finish Stray, I convinced my husband to sublet our house and move to Europe with me for three months. I still still have this nonstop desire to escape my life. It's not the healthiest thing all the time. And so I think when you have a kid, you really you feel that like weight of I'm not free anymore. And you're not you're not as free anymore, but you still can like you can still do a few things. <laughs> you can still get out every now and then. Not anymore. <laughs> not anymore. Yeah, none of us today. But yeah, I guess if I was to ask a question, do you still have that same sense of wanderlust? Wanderlust. Oh, my God. <laughs> today. I'm going nuts. I know. Nothing can be done. Nothing. At least for the time being. But it's good. It's what you were saying earlier. It's it's this intense focus on the lives that we do have instead of constantly trawling sites for cheap tickets to <laughs> random places. It's true. I, I do think it has some people dreaming of what will be the first thing that they do, though, as soon as it's the danger is over, which could be a long time, but uh, yeah. where to go. So maybe just to end, I'm curious, after all of that, was it hard for you to sort of come back around and decide to get married again mm. and actually put down a kind of root again? You know, Julian, my son, is the root. And so that was really hard. The postpartum period, so many moms told me, get ready for the bliss of postpartum. And I was like, what bliss? This is a nightmare. (laughs) I had a great life. What did I do? Who am I? What a disaster. I'm not capable of this. It passed. But that was really the first time that I felt bound to my life. I write that in Stray, that I was fully invested in where I was in a home, in being a stable entity for someone else. And it was not even a choice. It just happened from the minute he was born. And so the decision to get married was very practical. We needed to share health insurance. Great. We were, you know, we were planning another child. Um, I actually think that marriage is more sacred now than I used to. And I wouldn't have done it 
if I felt any shred of the anxiety that I felt the first time around. But I also, I don't think that I take it quite the same way. I've never had a wedding. I would never like, so I just, I'm still the same person in a lot of ways. (laughs) Um, It's something private and um, been married for one year. So I'm obviously killing it and pretty much you know have solved all my problems great yeah you guys from <laughs> from here on out it's all gonna be smooth sailing from here you also write in the book this one thought was that you always felt like you couldn't have a child because you were too selfish but then somewhere along the line you realize what it really is is you're afraid mm-hmm. is that fear another thing that's sort of inherited from having the parents that you have or is it just that you would be rooted to the earth a little bit more like you are now. I think committing to someone as completely as you do when you become a mother was terrifying to me. But the fear is definitely left over from my parents. And I don't th- I think those women that experience pure bliss post birth, I mean, I don't know what drugs they're on, but I want them. <laughs> I... I don't think that it scares them to love. And for me, it was the most vulnerable, flayed, exposed, raw I'd ever felt. I mean, I've you, it's not with a, a partner. There's always some part of you that is reserved for you in case this person hurts me, in case I ever have to be on my own again. There's always some part of you that remains separate from them. But in the case of my son, he can do whatever he wants to me and uh, the world can do whatever it wants to him. And I have no defenses. And it's not like, oh, that's scary existentially. It like kept me up every single night. I could not stand the fear. So it's all better now. He's 16 months old. The second baby, I'm going to bliss out or whatever the moms are doing. But I definitely think that that is a part of my upbringing, that fear around love. Yeah, it's fascinating. So when are you, are you going to give birth? How far along is it like going to happen in this pandemic, most likely? Or do you have any idea? (laughs) I'm due in July. Um, I'm giving birth at home this time already. Okay. Had that plan set up. So the pandemic shouldn't really affect it except the visitors, my friends that have just had babies. It's so strange to not have the contact with your community. But I also like quiet might be nice. Yeah. Do you have No, I don't. Yeah, I only have don't. two cats. Keep the cats. <laughs> <laughs> I know I really sold you on how much fun it is, but <laughs> keep your cats. Yeah, I don't think I'm going to be going down that road for who knows so many reasons. But yeah, I mean, in this pandemic, we've actually talked about just letting the cats out and letting them leave because they're driving <laughs> us crazy. Yeah. <laughs> now that we're holed up with them all the time, we're like, we should just let them go. Oh my God. <laughs> the book is called Stray. It comes out May 5th. Stephanie Danler, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. It's really lovely to talk. And until next time, this is The Bittersweet Life. I'm Katie Sewell. Thanks to Lori Lee Elliott for her help managing The Bittersweet Life on YouTube and to Sarah Johnson for her consultation. Our logo is made by Jody Rick at The Lost Laboratory with painting assistance by our muse, Caravaggio. You can find us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Just search for The Bittersweet Life Podcast. 
And if you haven't already, please subscribe to the show. That way we're here for you every week, both on Monday and now on Thursday. And if you review us on Apple Podcasts, we'll be grateful for you. Send us your topic ideas, questions, and voice memos. We're at bittersweetlife at mail.com or at the contact us page at thebittersweetlife.net. <laughs> <laughs>